Yeah. It's happening. Can we, does podcasts work like you can say whatever you want because you edit it, kind of? Yeah. Just do your best? So yes, just do your best and mess. like, let's all make sure we can get heard by this guy. How can we know? Is that well, line, see my voice? Yeah, that's somebody. It is. So when it's really big, then that's how we know we're being heard. Yeah. I don't think I'm being heard. You're not being heard, but stand Let's in your it. power. And for my breakfast, a devotee of scrambled eggs. I wanted to also ask about ghosts. So. Wait, that should be the title of this podcast. I wanted to also ask about ghosts. I wanted to also ask about ghosts. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we'll yes. cut this out or also we'll just use it. This is the University of Kentucky MFA podcast. Okay, Derek, would you like to introduce yourself, please? Sure. Um, I am the author of The Mortifications and How to Shake the Other Man, and I teach at the University of Michigan and at the Indy Institute of American Indian Arts. Great. And Claire, would you also mind introducing yourself? No, I find that very unprofessional. <laughs> <laughs> Not do that. My name's Claire Bay Watkins. I wrote Battleborn and Gold Fame Citrus, and I also teach at the University of Michigan and the Institute for American Indian Arts, as well as the Mojave School, mm -hmm. which is a free creative writing uh, workshop in my hometown in Peru. Mm -hmm. Do you um, both teach at the Mojave School? Mm -hmm. We do, yeah. Okay. It's, we are the entire staff. <laughs> <laughs> we are the entire school. Yeah. The faculty of two, administration of two. Mm -hmm. How often does it happen? Do you teach there? Um, our goal is to do it every year, but we have... Every last other year. Well, this is the thing. We don't know. I want to do it every year. Derek wants to do it every other year, basically. No, other round. Yeah, the other round. <laughs> <laughs> so Nevada is very haunted for me, so it's hard It's hard for me to go back there a lot. And plus, we've got this little kid now, so... Uh -huh. But I don't really only do it every other year. We have a wide age range, too. Like, we've had, like, 13-year-olds, and we've had people who were getting their GED, you know, 19 and 20 year olds. We had a guy, a kid, remember that kid who was wonderful? And he said one day, he, you know, it's a five day long thing and on like the third day he's like, I can't make it tomorrow. No, he couldn't do the reading. Remember, he's mm -hmm. like, I can't make it to the reading. And I was like, why? You know, you need to take this seriously. Like, you need to take yourself seriously and you're, you know, we're all in this together and you're letting other people down, blah, blah, blah. I lectured him. Mm -hmm. And he's like, I know, I know, you're right. It's just that I'm, um, I'm going to be deployed tomorrow. God. I'm enlisted, and it, you know, these are my last few days. <laughs> so it's like that that yeah. kind of intensity. Do you um do you ever think about having volunteers help you? Yeah, very much so. But the it's the funding is the issue. It's not super. It's not a super expensive thing to put on, but mm -hmm. um, once you start flying people out and yeah. driving out hotel, right now it's just out of, out of pocket. Right. So. so yeah, and I always so wanna, but we have had volunteers. In fact, mm -hmm. Gabriel Urza came out and taught for us, and this guy named David Armstrong volunteered. He was a, at the time a PhD candidate. I think he now teaches at Gonzaga. He was at UNLV, mm -hmm. and Joshua Wolf Shank at the Black Mountain Institute has been really super supportive. And forgive me, Josh, but they have a ton of money, and so it'd be great if we could get somehow linked up with UNLV. Mm -hmm. I read an interview that you had, Claire, where you said that you didn't have family anymore or like mm -hmm. a lot of connections mm -hmm. anymore to Perun? Mm -hmm. um, for me, 
yeah, I, I think what I was probably referring to in that interview was that, like, my, you know, my parents have both died, mm-hmm. and both of my sisters have moved away. One lives in Las Vegas, and one lives in Albuquerque. And so I don't really have any reason to go back to rural Nevada. I teach in Michigan, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to get there. It's hard to get there, and it's, I don't, the, also the place has been politically transformed drastically mm-hmm. during, like, I moved away in 2002 when I graduated from high school, mm-hmm. and I went to college up in Reno, and then I went to grad school, so it's been, like, since I've lived in the West, it's been almost 15 years. Mm-hmm. <gasps> since I've lived in Pahrump, it's been almost 15 years. Yeah. That's shocking to it's me. It's been a long time. Mm-hmm. That bums me out, man. But my point is that from 2002 to 2016, politics in rural America, I mean, rural America, my hometown went from being a pretty pleasant, tolerant place to now a very unpleasant, intolerant place. For example, during the Bush administration, the town passed local ordinance that um, required all Mexican Americans to register with the town. I believe or it's all Hispanic immigrants or the idea is if you don't live in the town and you're say last name is Palacio, when you arrive in the town you're supposed to go to the an office and like register and it was just a sort of a xenophobia a go go mm-hmm. thing. And this was you know, xenophobia before xenophobia was cool, you know. Mm-hmm. And so it's just been like it's a, it's a hotbed of libertarianism, and that has meant that they don't treat their young people very well or their education system very well. So it is a hard place for me to go to. But I mean, it's, I, mean mm-hmm. I think it's, I just, the kids there and, and listening to what they do during the day, during the summer, and mm-hmm. some of them don't, there's not much else to do in the town, you know, just that. And um, I mean, the fact that they came back, you know, that was the crazy part. That it's pretty cool. We had, I mean, we had two or three that came back mm-hmm. every year for the first three years. Um, mm-hmm. And I just don't th- I just don't know where else they're going to get that. I mean, that, that was the whole reason we started because you, yeah. Yeah, Lexi's yeah. there every single year. Hi, Lexi, if you're out there. Let's jump into talking about the books, if that's okay. Sure. Um, so we wanted to ask about um, bodies in novels taking the mortification sort of as a jumping off point. Um, there's so much about the body in there and it feels a lot like the body is always like drawing these characters away from the sense of setting the soul free. But there's like a body and soul dichotomy happening, right? And then um, we were also thinking in Gold Fame Citrus, there's like a dryness, thirst feeling that the mm-hmm. characters feel that you, yeah. you're translating to the reader through your character's bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you develop your character's physical bodies and how big a role does that play in how you tell a story? That's such a smart question, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> what does that made me think of? I, was, I just finished Derek's novel like two days ago um, and it's very good, which is a relief. You know, <laughs> you're married to something, you have a kid with them, you hope it is. It's a great. So I realized that our characters physically, Ulysses, there's a lot of physical aspects of Ulysses he has in common with my guy, Levi. Mm -hmm. One is their baldness. Mm -hmm. Baldness is huge, and also baldness is a big part of um, Gabe's book. And then Ulysses, our friend Gabe, is a writer also, and we were all in grad school together. 
Mm. And the scar on Ulysses' head is like Gabe's scar. Were you using Gabe's body to make Ulysses? <laughs> no, because I do that. I look at people's actual bodies because I only know what it's like to be in my own. No, I was Especially not. for a man. Like, That's I don't know true. what... It, remember I asked you, like, how do men physically intimidate each other? I was like, how can you tell if you can fight a guy or not? Like, I just don't know what it's like to be in a man's body, and that's what I think it is, fighting all the time. Fighting all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I watch football. That's what it seems like. Mm-hmm. Okay, anyway, take it away. Well, the answer to your question is no. <laughs> it's just a coincidence just <laughs> that your freaking character has a scar exactly like your best friend. It's not, it's not, a, it's not exactly like my best friend. And also... Oh, Maybe I'm not a close reader, but... Just hold on. Tap the brakes. No, because I wanted him to look like his father at some point, but he wasn't prematurely balding. So oh. if something had to happen to his head, it would force him to then shave And the mom down. is bald, too, because and of the, the chemo. Bald, the chemo. Mm-hmm. So there so are other things going on. But most to the larger question at hand uh-huh. that I'd like to address... Um, it, the, the body in that book is mostly comes from just my own experience. I'm like, I don't speak Spanish. I, I, I've only just recently been to Cuba. Mm-hmm. I grew up in Cuban locales. Um, so literally just like the body that my dad has helped make is what has like connects me to um, the island and that heritage. And so I knew, I knew going into the book that I would want the things that happen to their bodies to be part of the way they get pulled in or that they experience mm-hmm. conflict or... Um, the way that they were relating to that life and that those questions of belonging for help. Mm-hmm. So um, that's why the body is so, that's like the, it becomes the place of conflict for most of them. You know, I, it occurred to me when I was listening to you, Derek, that um, the body is kind of all Luz and Ray and Levi mm-hmm. and have and Ig too because Ig can't really communicate and they don't really know where she comes from mm-hmm. so it's she, like her body is like a mystery mm-hmm. and I think there's one line in the book that says something like her body told the, s- the story meaning Ig, Ig gets like um, physically injured in a, uh, hopefully a kind of upsetting way mm-hmm. and um, you know they're just like what happened to her and they're looking at her body to figure out what happened mm-hmm. and I think Luz is doing that especially because she was a model you know, which is kind of like being a professional body, like mm-hmm. a living mannequin, the world's best robot, basically, like mm-hmm. the most sophisticated robot ever is like, a you know, woman having her picture taken. Like it's, mm-hmm. I, I based a lot of that on this time I had a, a photo taken for Vogue magazine and it was an awful and awfully interesting experience and I learned a lot, but I mostly felt so in my body, more in, more in my body than I've ever been before. Like in, in yoga, and also I felt like an object, like my body was an object. Like if people would come over and be like, oh, her wrist is too floppy. And I'm like, oh, I'm yeah. right here. Like you're touching me, you're moving me around. Yeah. At one point they were like, I remember it like it was yesterday. They, they, somebody was like, you know, there's like half a dozen or more people in the room, people bringing coffee, people who did your hair or whatever. And they're all looking at you, trying to be like, what is it? And someone was like, she's not a model. Or I, I said, I'm not a model, I'm a writer. And someone was like, obviously. <laughs> I was like, I just thought. And then when I left the, the shoot, I had been wearing these crazy Vogue high heels all day. Mm-hmm. And arch, you know, being in my body in a really strange way. Because I didn't have Spanx. They were very mad at me that I wouldn't wear Spanx just like well just airbrush it and I was like well go ahead but like I'm not gonna help you do it or whatever you know <laughs> and um, when I got out of the shoot 
I put on my regular sneakers and my feet hurt so bad that I could barely walk and I had to call a cab. Like I couldn't get to the subway, I had to call a cab and have them take me to my hotel. This, like I felt like injured. So I started doing some research and I, re- I watched a film about modeling and stuff and it was so like painfully and dramatically in the body that it suggested a good story. What a twisted road that was. Is that how, <laughs> I mean, first of all, I can't, I imagine you like reacting in the moment in that Vogue shoot, were you like giving people shit? No, not at all. Are you crazy? I, would just be like, I wasn't giving people shit at all. I was super compliant because okay. I felt, oh, I'm so lucky, and also I'm not yeah. pretty enough to be in Vogue, and I'm so insecure about my body, and, and also they asked me what they sent you an email. They sent me an email beforehand that was like through my publicist or something. It was like, what kind of, they want to know what your labels, what kind of your labels and your measurements and stuff so that they can bring a whole rack that's just for you. But like I your don't, designer label? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, they're like, who do you like to wear? And I was like, uh, Massimo from Target. <laughs> like, what are you talking about who I like to wear? And like, you know, I, I was raised by coyotes, basically. I don't have label, labels that I like to wear. This is like a Zara top I'm wearing, you know? Can it, that's so fancy. I just went on Macy's.com and looked at the, you know how it's like shop by brand? Mm-hmm. I was like, and I said like some of those that I, I was like, oh, I think I've like been in a Macy's and seen that. And then that's what they brought. And they were all these like old lady Macy's pantsuit type <laughs> things like Hillary Clinton <laughs> would wear basically. <laughs> so it was hard to find something that was cute and blah, blah, blah. So all my anxiety was like very uh-huh. low and self. I was reduced to basically a 13 year old girl who just mm-hmm. wanted to like please people. That's really interesting because I feel like with Les's character, she's also this symbol for America or for the West at least mm-hmm. because she's like adopted by the Bureau of Conservation and she's she's a model, but before she's a model, she's like a model for yeah. America. A model minority, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. And so I was wondering too how, uh, why you decided to make Luz so important to the culture before she became important as a character in your book. I think it just, it was sort of like serendipitous. I was reading Cadillac Desert, this nonfiction book about water in the West by Mark Reisner. Mm-hmm. It's like maybe 20 years old, but still, you know, sadly more relevant than ever. And um, anyway, he sort of in passing mentioned a figure that the, the, the government actually did adopt such a baby as a sort of a, like, a, during the Dust Bowl, as a sort of a PR scheme to, con, to boost morale among the Okies or whatever. I'm probably getting the details wrong here. But there was some baby who was called, you know, and I think her name was Baby Dunn. And I think that's where I got Les's name from. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, this is, th- I, I always love it when you can kind of distill a character's backstory into this like really super potent reduction, like one sentence. We it's kind of a game we play around the house. It's like story of so and so, and then I was like, okay, well, how's she gonna get from being baby done to being this starlet up in the mansion, vagabond, sex symbol, discarded model, etc. Then mm-hmm. that was her story, her where she came from. We so that kind of takes us because we were talking about <coughs> Lesdens, um Liz Jen's background, her body, and like her heritage, mm-hmm. and we're also thinking about place in terms of like the Encarnacion's being from Cuba and then relocating to Connecticut, and um, 
we've talked before about how place plays such a big role in your stories too, but I guess I'm wondering about like how do you think about place when you're writing? Why Connecticut? And um, Cuba has such a big draw in the story. Maybe you could talk more about that. Um, I mean, Connecticut, uh, I knew I was going to send them to New England Mm because it was sort of the, you know, so I grew up in New Hampshire and like the Cubans I knew were just like my family. Like we didn't know (laughs) Cubans in New Hampshire. Um, But it was also made for a very different kind of relationship to Cuban Americanism and just Cuban general and feeling very, um, I don't know, there was just something about the distance that made it seem, you know, like, so my dad only remembered, he left when he was five and a half, so only remembers a few things from the island, like really just brief visual memories he has of the farm and the house and a tree in his backyard. Um, But because that's all we had, I think there was some, it felt, they felt more precious and more rare, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, whereas, you know, I I think if we'd grown up in Miami around the rest of my father's family, those things would not have seemed so, um, they wouldn't have, I don't burn so brightly in my memory or or the way I think about him and his, where he came from. Uh, But at the same time, like, I didn't, you know, I'm not, I don't know much, I've never lived in Miami, I don't know about those places, and, um, there was something interesting to me about writing about Cubans in New England and Cubans in a very, um, just that, that's so far removed, you know, mm-hmm. and taken so far away. Um, and then on you know, a practical level, like, I mean, there's tobacco in Connecticut, which is really a fascinating thing that they, um, until I started writing the book. Um, and that seemed like a really nice and interesting access point to, to bring some of that Cuba stuff back or to have them confront it in weird ways. Um, but I mean, all of that is to then that makes just the, the draw of the island Cuba. It's more mythic than it is a reality. So I mean, especially this book, and I don't know if this will always be true, but the draw is not so much about a tangible place. It is just sort of the idea of a place and what the, how that idea affects you and, and forces you to change. Um, especially for the character of Soledad, he takes this lover who reminds her of Cuba. He's like in exile too yeah. because of the curse, yes. which I love. Well, especially, I mean, he's great, you know, he was fun to write with because, you know, her response to their exile is one I I have seen a lot of, which is sort of people trying to hold on to just certain parts of Cuba that they Mm -hmm. remember, or to remember Cuba in a very specific kind of way. And, you know, her storyline for me is very, I find it very sad at points just because you can't do that, you know, like you can't compartmentalize a world you knew and take from it the you know the happy memories or you can't and you can't hold on to those and have the other stuff sort of fade away or extend her so her her problem you know her issue as opposed to maybe the kids and the fathers trying to do that you know to mm-hmm. pick up to create to only hold on to bits and pieces and um but without all the other parts it sort of it, it just it it, it decom- decomposes yeah. basically yeah. specifically for gold fame fame citrus too it's the armagosa dunsi mm-hmm. and there was also Luz and Ray and Levi, and so I was wondering when you were creating this story in your head, if you thought of the characters first, or if you thought of the place you wanted to create first mm-hmm. in the West, and mm-hmm. and so like which one kind of informs the other. Well, basically, it was two separate books. First, one book was about a young couple who kidnaps a child together, and the that one was set in Columbus, Ohio, um, in Victorian Village among sort of like middle-class academics and academic wannabes, basically. It was like a campus novel. It was awful. Um, (laughs) And then the other, my secret, wonderful book, was just sand. Like, I had this manuscript, and it was called 
for a long time as a joke, but then you know how like joke titles become real titles? Like that's how we almost named our baby Ajax. Um, <laughs> it was called Sandalanch with an exclamation point. And then Swamplandia came out, so I took out the exclamation point, and then it was just like Sandalanch. So. Um, and it was just rock and sand and dirt and wind and some plants, but not mostly just rock and, and dirt and sand. And then eventually, obviously, probably you were like, you should just mash them together. <laughs> like, take your people from your boring Columbus book and put them in an interesting place and see what happens to them. In a sandalanch, yeah. Like, take them out of the academy, put them into a sandalanch. It's not a sophisticated, like, aesthetic that I have. <laughs> I'm just like, what if there was a fucking sandalanch, you know? And then they had six or whatever. Yeah, that's basically my storytelling strategy. What's well, so interesting, I think, about uh, Goldfade's interest, you know, Battleborn, there was. Obviously, there was a lot of attention paid to the landscape and the way the characters moved through it. And the landscape was its own presence and, and its own, it felt like its own permanence. Mm-hmm. But in Goldfame Citrus, I, I remember reading it the first time and just loving the way you had taken the characters who, in many ways, were trying to embody and enact the mythos of the West. Yes. Which has, at this point, and your book does this so beautifully, that mythos has become more permanent than the landscape of the West. And that moving, that roving yes. sand dune, and that that like the land, the land is never the same chapter to chapter in your book because of what's going on. Right. Um, and that was I don't know that was I found that that was seen like such a different, mm-hmm. you know, that's a different way than when we talk about people write about the land or you know they write about it as though it's permanent or they get a sense yeah, of yeah like there's this monolithic yeah. thing. You're right. It's like very fluid. It's like dynamic. That's a cool thing about the sand. Like that's why the image of the sand dune is, t- is where I started is because of like the fluidity and the idea that like when I was a kid we grew up near sand dunes and we went playing in them and so on you know we had to drive there and whatever but um it was a dangerous place like people got hurt there or they got lost and it, I, my mom would always remind me like it's because they move around and that's a mm-hmm. scary alive mm-hmm. kind of landscape and I also want to write work that challenges the idea of the desert as like a dead, lifeless place. So a place that's like moving and magical and like pulsing and spooky is like the opposite of dead to me, you know? It doesn't really matter if there's a fucking zebra or a babbling brook going through it. It's an alive landscape. But do you guys write about place? Is that big for you too as writers? That's a good question, Austin. Yes. <laughs> I think for me it is. One of the reasons I came I'm from Kentucky, I grew up here, but I had moved away and I came back because place felt really important and think of Kentucky as a special place. Um, and I oftentimes I have trouble creating a good plot in a story mm-hmm. because I'm so focused on where the story is oh. and what that looks Dude, like. totally. And, and I don't even want anything to happen. I'm just like, let's yeah, just... can we look at it? I would rather that <laughs> every story would just be someone sitting on the ground looking around, and I'd be so happy, you know? Yeah, Derek yeah. and my other, other readers are always like, this is beautiful stuff, but you should put a human in there. Stuff's happening when sand dunes are moving around. Yeah. It's just not happening to people. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Or it's like like the idea of like the desert as being like, uh, a lot of people are like, oh, I feel like it like wants to kill me. And I'm like, it's not that it wants to kill you. It just doesn't care whether you live or die. And that's what you're really afraid of. Right. You're not afraid of like there's monsters in the hills. You're afraid that you're fucking dust. Yeah. And we all are. And like the world doesn't care that you're here. And <laughs> if you drive through Death Valley, you know that. 
Yeah. If you're driving through the woods in Pennsylvania, you can like pretend that you're a special snowflake and you'll never die. Yeah. But in the desert, you definitely are going to die. Maybe not in winter. No, true. Pennsylvania quite bleak in the winter. Yeah. And Death Valley quite lovely quite in the winter. <laughs> yeah. So we wanted to talk about fate versus free will. So the characters of Ulysses and Isabel, they Ulysses especially seems to be pondering over this question, and Isabel is more like seems drawn by fate in some ways, but she's also a very active agent, mm-hmm. and they both are. So I feel like this question is going back and forth a lot, like how much of a guiding question this was for you while you were writing, and also like as you were writing, what did you discover for yourself? I'm so glad you asked that. Mm-hmm. I want to know where you stand on free will. Right. <laughs> I want to know. Um, well, you know, I think, I don't know, because they both, you know, as twins, I th- they they seem to move in very different directions, but they're also Ulysses and Ulysses and Isabel. Um, but I think I don't know. In a lot of ways, I think they're concerned with. They can sometimes be concerned with very similar ideas, you know, and like mm-hmm. the way that Isabel is moving. She's sort of this blind id, you know. That's like I hear something and I'm gonna like go see what it's all about immediately. Um, but in a lot of ways, that comes from like her allegiance to her father and the things, the promises that she's made, and that sense of self that she's created around her faith and her relationship with her father. And the same, th- I mean, but the same, I think, in some ways, could be said. Uh, also said so of Ulysses, who just has reshaped it differently once he's gotten to Hartford. You know, he sort of adopts his mother's posture and thinks he wants nothing to do with his father. But that nothingness, then that desire to push away, shapes. You know going into the tobacco fields, trying to understand like how alike he is or is not. Um, so, I mean, mostly I would say that, you know, by the end of the book, the thing that I really understood was sort of just like that your family is, the way your family shapes you is just so, it's so much deeper. And the, the consequences, the ripples of that shaping sometimes don't show up for years, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so you're saying family is fate. Fate is family. Yeah. <laughs> well done. <laughs> well, that's in your book. I know. <laughs> but I just wanted people to hear yeah, it because it's yeah. a lovely idea. I think so, yeah. And I mean, I mean, in terms of free will, I think, you know, you can. They're just, I think there are. Is that your phrase? Did you make that up? I did make that up. Where did you, how did you get there? I like I wrote, well, it's, it's like literally on the last page of the book, so yeah. I had to write the first three hundred. <laughs> oh. <laughs> how did you get the, the language, like the music of it? Like the, uh, what's that called when you say family is fate, fate is family? It's a, not a palindrome, but it's a similar yeah. type of symmetrical construction yeah. or mirrored syntax or something. Anyway, how did you get there? No, I didn't have that, I don't think, until I wrote that. Until, that's in a moment in the book where Ulysses is then telling the story of his family to these two children yeah, he's adopted yeah. by the end of the book. And that made sense how he would explain it. Totally. Right? And having seen his mm-hmm. what happened to his mother and his father, but then also having watched especially what happened to his sister yeah. and saying to yourself, like, you know, you're gonna you're gonna you know, you're gonna do a bunch of different things and you can go in many different directions. Free will exists, but that free will is gonna always be bumping up against I know elements of your family and what your family has imposed upon you consciously or subconsciously. Dude, that's why I can't get like I Isabel makes me so uncomfortable as a character. She's I somebody like, called her repellent. Repellent? Yeah, this was a person who told me she really loved the book, but for whatever reason just found Isabel repellent. And really? Think, yeah, I and mean, then she didn't mean it as an insult. I think she just was like, this. It's hard for it's me really, to read It's really, it's a hard, it's a hard, and it's, I mean, it's hard for me to write. Like a person who would 
do that. And because I mean, there are elements of Isabel that I can very much relate to. The sort yeah. of the stubborn-headed. I mean, the th- especially with questions of faith, and, and Cuba in the book is a question of faith in a lot of ways because she doesn't. They don't remember it, or they're so distant from it, and they don't know what's going on down there. Um, faith sometimes, can, you know, the way we talk about it, I think, often ask you to just, when in a moment of crisis, to dig deeper into it, right? Yeah. And sort of you keep, you can, but the, I don't know, like faith is like fathomless, so you can get lost in it in ways that Isabel does, and it gets so wed to her identity from such an early point on that it just seemed, I mean, I think what I discovered with her is that it's a, in some way it's going to be inescapable, but um, yeah. I don't know. Faith is fathomless. That's another one. <laughs> that's a bummer, man. Yeah. That is a total that's bummer. bummer. <laughs> yeah, that's a bummer. You have your own faith. The West. The myth of the West is your own faith that is also... F- Wait, sorry. The myth of the, the West is fathomless, are you saying? Yeah, you have your relationship with the West is so... And it's endless. It's never going to be over, you know? And there's nothing you can do, you know, about that that's relationship that's going to, that's gonna like, conclude it, or you'll never find the boundary of it. Yeah, you know, yeah, which is yeah, why you yeah. keep writing about it and why you always write about it, I think. Yeah, totally. And totally, that and motherhood. Totally, mm-hmm. yeah. Like, you'll just always, that's the will, you're the drain you're circling your whole life. <laughs> well, no, I mean, that's, that's a double-edged sword, right? Because you get, you write, like, Gold Fame Citrus, I think, plums it a different way and, and, and discovers new things about that mythos and that landscape that you didn't know in Battleborn. Yeah, sure. But the result of that is that you also have to be consumed by it to a greater extent. Totally. Yeah, yeah, and that's why someone like Isabel freaks me out, because, like, you know, for a rootless Westerner orphan, like, fate is family is, like, really scary for me, when you have a family like mine, or motherhood, like, if I'm destined to become like my mother, or if I'm in exile from the West, in a sense, I know that's a silly word to use in terms of actual political exiles, but you know what I mean, I Mm. hope. So I... I don't know. I love, like, but when I say that it's difficult to read Isabel, it's because it's, like, harrowing and, and like, a really moving, powerful, trans- like, story. Mm-hmm. But I also, she's so real to me that I, maybe that's what the person who said she's repellent means. Maybe that's what we mean when we, like, criticize. We see so much of especially, like, female yeah. characters as people. What we mean is, like, I felt like I knew her and I wish things could have been better for her. You know, that's mm-hmm. what people say about Luz a lot. They're like, I just wish that she mm-hmm. could have, like, been more independent. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, me too. <laughs> and also, I wish that for myself when I was 17 and for my daughter in 20 yeah. years. Mm-hmm. All, yes, yes. <laughs> Agreed. Mm-hmm. But I'm not writing, like, a brochure for a woman. How to be a woman. Right. But some people are. And some people are more, they're, and it's not, it's great. Like, there's room for a good example of some something would be, like, oh, I don't know, like, there I'm actually, I don't know who I want to offer, but I think you know, like, people who are writing kind of how to be a woman characters, or like people that you could really believe in as hero- heroines mm-hmm. that subscribe more to the idea of heroism than I do. Mm-hmm. And that's okay, I can like do my thing and they can do their thing. So a lot of people ask, like I was on this podcast one time and someone was like, why didn't you make her a better role model for women? Why didn't you make Luz <laughs> a better role model for young women? And I was like, well, I'm not writing a brochure about motherhood. He's like, well, if there are no brochures, how are, are these supposed to know? <laughs> and, like, I actually think that's a pretty good point, you know? Mm-hmm. Because, like, yeah, if we, how can we criticize the way women are represented in something and then don't offer counter-representations? But also, 
I just have to like write the book I have to write. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a lot of the likability discussion, there are, I mean, women are represented in so many different ways, and we criticize those representations for being like we criticize representations that are flat. Right? Yeah. And so like, when it's when like women politically dubious round, and artistically unsound is the problem, right? And it's mm-hmm. not just that I'm criticizing your your pol- politically objectionable viewpoint about women. I'm also not a fan of your bad art. <laughs> <laughs> like that's the problem with your flat female characters yeah. is that they suck yeah. as characters, yeah. not that they suck as people. People who suck as people are awesome to read about. <laughs> right. If they're written right. well, we're you know, so excited to read those. Characters. I think a lot of times too, I'm generalizing a bit, but I, uh, men are usually usually when a man encounters a woman, she is there to help or to serve. <coughs> or to make him feel better, or to cheer, or to be on mm-hmm. the sidelines, to be the cheerleader. He's like the star, and she's the help. Um, when you meet a woman in a book, she's going to do, like, Les is going to do what I say she does, not mm-hmm. what Derek says she does. And so for maybe, I don't know, this is sort of an oddball theory, but maybe a lot of men, that's the first time they're encountering a woman who's not there to help him. And it's like, I don't like that. <laughs> I don't like having to watch her go do what she's going to do, and I have no say in it. Right. You know? Right. They're, they're um, not well-behaved female mm-hmm. characters, and that's always some sort of a, in those shallow critiques, it's a problem that they didn't mm-hmm. behave themselves. Yeah, well, can, can we yeah, talk about the on pandering thing? Yeah. When I read on pandering, I feel like it relates kind of to what you're saying right now about mm-hmm. like how men perceive characters that women write or how men want maybe female characters to behave. And so I was reading an interview you did with Anne McGreevy. Yeah, yeah, Annie. And Annie. And uh, you guys were talking about that in the interview, and then on Pandering was like a year later, you were talking about Mm -hmm. how you write Mm -hmm. to men. Um, And so I was wondering if since on Pandering, if you changed the way you write at all, how you write characters or who you feel your audience is for your characters. You know, that's probably like... Um, the most important question you can really ask about on pandering after you know a year or two later and I get it every now and then and I've given various answers so I've said sometimes I say I haven't really changed how I write at all I'm still struggling with it I still have the doubt and I still have like the voice with the Adam's apple in my head and that's true and sometimes I say, I'm free, I feel like healed, I just write for myself now. <laughs> um, but that's, and that's true too. But they're also both, they're, they're true at the same time because we're a mess and we're complicated yeah. inside, you know? Um, so the probably the truest answer I could give you is that I don't know. I don't know how I have changed as a writer since I wrote on pandering because... I have not been doing, um, I've not been analyzing my own work. Since I wrote on pandering, I've just been writing and having fun and like being in my garden and being with my kid and Mm -hmm. smoking weed and going to out dancing with my husband and having a, I don't, I haven't sat down and evaluated. And so I guess whenever my next book comes out, then that will be the time that I actually sort of hold that book up to Goldfame Citrus and Battleborn and see, like, what, what really did happen. But mm-hmm. I'm in it right now. Like, mm-hmm. I'm just in this. I, I can tell, you know, the line from Cathedral, um, something is different here. <laughs> That's all I know, that it's like I'm changing, I'm interested in, I'm reading new new people and interested in different modes and forms that I've, I've 
I've never been more excited about what I'm writing. Mm-hmm. I'll say that. I wanted to also ask about ghosts. Yes. Um, in the Morphications, there's the... Wait, that should be the title of this podcast. I wanted to also ask about ghosts. I wanted to also ask about ghosts. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was like for the whole thing. Right? <laughs> I and then just make everybody, say it. make everybody say, I wanted to also ask about ghosts. <laughs> At the end, it's the last question of every podcast. Um, so in the Morphications, um, there's Henry's... Um, relationship to his family's tobacco farm and his was it his father or his grandfather who believed that the ghosts of the slaves were Mm -hmm. in the plants and stuff like that yeah his his father believed or his grandfather believed that eventually Mm -hmm. and then his father neither denied nor confirmed it yeah and then um there's this sense also of like the children becoming um, their mother or their father, more like like who they who are they more like, and um, and also they're called the encarnaciones. So I was wondering how you were thinking just generally about like things being reincarnated or like ideas also seem to like be embodied in the characters in different moments, starting yeah. up like that, or like also the um, the idea of the tobacco plants growing. Mm-hmm. And the seeds and hold that holding some human <laughs> soul, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. soul connection. I don't know. So I wanted to ask you about ghosts, and then we wanted to after that switch to ghosts, cowboy. Cool. That's an okay. elegant transition. That's a thought. So so I grew up Catholic, and I like here and there I'll practice a little bit, but I'm still like very much interested in Catholicism, and. I like the idea that like the Holy Spirit is like a ghost version of God. He's also something that happened as a result of an interaction between the Father and the Son. It's, and then there's also like the idea of the Trinity, three persons in one. Um, do you have time to back up about that? I do not. Okay. We don't. All right. Okay. Catholics believe there's one God, but there are three persons in that one God. Cool. I know, right? Yeah. Um, so there's something about... You know, having coming from that tradition and thinking about, especially because it's the father and the son, it's all familial. Um, you know, when I think of parents and children and even and siblings, I don't know. I, I think writing this book, I started to think about them more, mostly as just different versions of each other. And as a family unit, you will vacillate between different. You will be sometimes like your father or your mother or your sister or your brother, and you will shift through all those identities. And each of those identities is at one point in a passive mode. And so it sort of weighs on you like a ghost a little bit, more mm-hmm. so than it is uh, in the active mode. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, with Isabel, I think, you know, so if, like with Isabel, for example, like her faith is of her father, but then sort of like the carnal experience she has in the refugee camp is sort of like, um, excuse me, the revolutionary camp is sort of like what Soledad is going back, going through with Henry back on the island, sort of some trying to reclaim something. Um, mm-hmm. Ulysses like looks like his dad at certain points and takes on his father's role one specific moment, but it's also you know trying to be like nine house for a time, mm-hmm. um, and so I don't know. It's I think I mean in a lot of ways I think growing up in a family is just like being surrounded by different versions of yourself that are in some ways ghost like. Yeah, totally, totally ghost like. Yeah, and so for in Ghost Cowboys, 
of course a ghost baby from the cult your dad was in is going to follow you around Reno. <laughs> is that not what college was like for you guys? <laughs> That's, I don't know how else to, how much more realer I can be about, you know, like the haunt, hauntings, you know. Every story is a ghost story, right? That's mm-hmm. what Foster Wallace said, I think. Yeah. Um, so. We love stories of ghost stories. Yeah, I guess that is his. But why not every story? Sure. I don't know. I have to revisit <laughs> DFW to find out. Um, but remember, one time I was talking to Karen Russell about something, and she said, you know, you want your reader to be haunted, but by a very specific set of ghosts, and not the whole graveyard. Like, it's not just a, a horror show or some. I don't know exactly what we're talking about. I thought about, for some reason, that's what stuck with me, is like the, the, the few specific, specific ghosts, weird ones that have a little baggie full of Ziploc, like carrots. Mm-hmm. Like, for some reason, Razor Blade Baby, the ghost, needed to be a sort of a better woman, quote unquote, than um, Claire is mm-hmm. in that story, because that's kind of what, what Claire is going through. It would make a bad movie, probably. It would be too heavy-handed. It would be like kind of a Garden State situation, probably, mm-hmm. as a film. Because it's not a subtle image, a silly ghost wafting after you. But it works in books, and when you can get into people's minds and start to see their ghosts, I think that's cool. I, uh, I've gotten, I, I have a delightfully wide range of feedback on that story. <laughs> it's one that gets assigned a lot to read, which mm-hmm. is fun, and it also kind of, uh, I think it's free online, that's probably why it gets read so much, <laughs> but basically, um, people are like, ghosts? What are you talking about, ghosts? Like, I didn't see any ghosts in there. Yeah. And some people are like oh, your memoir about the time you got haunted, that was a cool <laughs> thing. Which I love. I'm not trying to make fun of any of these. Yeah. I lo- it's a story that invites uh-huh. a, a, you to have disparate interpretations, and to, it conflicts just when you're like, oh, she's not real. And then the friends are like, oh, I see. You're, you're, you brought someone with yeah. you. And you're like, what? Yeah. Dad, dang it. Why is, oh, she get the quarters. Are the, is a bag of quarters just floating around downtown Reno and she's putting them into the parking meters? Um, I like that. I like to. It's mostly first and foremost about about playing, which is playing, just dicking around, in a fun way, and then. You mean how you tell the story? Yeah. In terms yeah. of like all the ways you approach the story. Yeah, just it's more about like resisting interpretation. I think, mm-hmm. than yeah. ask saying this is how I feel about X, i.e., and that's because. It's, it, I wrote it to be the exact opposite of a Manson family memoir because I didn't want to be that kind of writer and I knew that it would be easier for me to be that kind of writer. And when Ghost Cowboys was published, I got a few little nibbles from agents and once or twice someone would even be so audacious as to send me like, uh, I could get you X figure advance. I could get you a seven figure advance for this if you wrote a memoir about Charles Manson. And I was just like, I was born in 1984. What the fuck do I have to say about Charles Manson? I know this guy, Charlie, that my dad used to jam with, but something tells me that that's not the book that would get me seven figures, right? Mm -hmm. But it was definitely super tempting. I'm not not trying to be above it all. 
But so I basically wanted to be like, no, I'm gonna do it in a weird short story, sort of surreal, playful puzzle of a piece, not mm-hmm. in a traditional. You know, yeah. It's not that kind of story, yeah. as the line goes. Oh, we're out of questions. I ran out of time. <laughs> 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 well, we wanted to ask, uh, yeah, we are running a bit late. So we wanted to ask, first of all, what you guys are um, like reading now and also like what your big challenges are now that you've set for yourself in your next project. Ooh. Not like describe your projects, yeah. I know they're private, but like some of the technical you stuff. You could do that too if you want. You could <laughs> spill all the beans <laughs> if you want. Like some of the technical yeah. things are like... So what I'm doing right now is reading Kurt Cobain's journals, and um, I've wanted to write about Kurt Cobain for so long, and I don't know, and I have been writing this thing in my head, and I don't really know if it's an essay or a story or what, but the thing that's really a pickle for me is, right now, is like, I'm revisiting his journals, his feelings and the things he says about women is a little bit like... I mean, he's a freaking kid, a teenager in Aberdeen, Washington in, uh, you know, early 90s, mm-hmm. in, in the late 80s. But still, it's like my, he, he Kirk Cobain's like a hero of mine from childhood, so it's be, he's being like definitely knocked down a few pegs. Mm-hmm. So that's, it's basically the, the, the craft challenge, the artistic challenge there is realizing that I wanted to write some sort of like a, a version of hero worship, and that's not going to work. I'm like, oh yeah, you don't get to do that. That's not art. <laughs> you know, I don't just get to like fangirl out right. on Kurt Cobain for 400 pages and then expect to win the Pulitzer. You know, <laughs> like, <laughs> a little harder than that. What are you reading and doing? Um, I am reading. I'm reading a lot of um, heady detective fiction. Mm. I'm reading some Patrick Modiano, and I'm also reading some mystical stuff like. Um, a lot of Clarice Inspector, which is wonderful, and I'm trying to write a uh, the new book is going to be about a Cuban American swimmer who defects to Cuba because he fails to make the U.S. squad. He the Olympics. The Olympics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh. So we'll see. The craft. My issue right now is I I'm I'm hoping it feels like it might want to be a novel series. Mm. And I have to think pretty bigly. Bigly. <laughs> Oh my god, you guys, we almost went like one hour without talking about Trump. That was amazing. (laughs) That was really good. Good job, everyone. Thank you. I wanted to also ask about Ghosts is a product of UK's Visiting Writers series. Find out more on the University of Kentucky MFA website. Our theme music is Mitchie Puked by the wonderful Parker Hobson. Many thanks to UK's Media Depot for tech resources and support.